are back. Let's talk about some uh, talk about some good news. Uh, we reported uh, many months ago about this effort to restore the American chestnut trees, which were wiped out in a blight early in the 20th century. In May, it was reported in the Associated Press that another stand of trees, a, a really spectacularly large stand of trees, have been discovered uh, near President Franklin D. Roosevelt's Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia. Something about these particular trees apparently enabled them to, uh, to endure the, uh, the blight, and the find has stirred excitement among those who are working to restore the American chestnut and raised hopes that scientists might be able to use the pollen to breed hardier chestnut trees. The American Chestnut Foundation has been working for about 15 years now to develop a blight-resistant variety. Their goal is to infuse the American chestnut with blight-resistant genes of the Chinese chestnut. What, what uh, we find so striking about this is uh, the sheer eco-disaster that this episode represented. American chestnuts once made up 25% of the forests of the eastern United States. There were an estimated 4 billion trees from Maine to Mississippi. It was said by some that a squirrel could hop on a chestnut tree in Maine and, uh, and go all the way down to Mississippi without ever having to uh, go into any other type of tree. We're encouraged by this. I think, uh, I think maybe my, my warm feelings toward this tree uh, are due to the fact that we had one at my grandmother's house. Uh, it was a marvelous tree. I don't think it was an American chestnut. I think it was the Chinese variety. I, I, I don't know that. But it was a wonderful, wonderful tree, and it would produce every year about World Series time, which back in those days was October. I think now they play the World Series in December by the time they get done with playoffs. But uh, it would produce a crop of, of these nuts, which, uh, which uh, you know, really are very tasty. You could eat them raw, and I ate a lot of them raw as a kid, but uh, if you boil them up, peel them, man, they were really a treat. And, I, and I'll wager that probably not one person in a hundred listening has ever even tasted a chestnut. But, uh, but if you ever get a chance, check it out. They're, they're good. Of course, if you, if you have tried chestnuts, uh, you're probably Korean, because I understand that, uh, that uh, they're huge, uh, hugely popular in Korea, and that they have street vendors everywhere which, uh, which sell them. Which, I, which means I think that if I, if I go to Korea, I'm going to plan my trip for the fall. We were bagging on George Carlin a couple weeks back, noting that his latest book, or one of his latest books, When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops, really was kind of disappointing, as was his personal appearance in the Sacramento area. But, uh, you know, I might have been a little hard on him, because there are, there are a few moments. I think I'm going to read one of them, uh, one of them for you. Says uh, comedian George Carlin, I object to the use of usage when it's used in place of use. There's nothing wrong with using use. It's been in use a long time, and I'm used to it. It isn't that usage isn't useful. I simply have no use for its current usage. <laughs> the use of usage should be consistent with good usage. I'd prefer to say my use of the Internet rather than my usage. If I meant it collectively, I might say American usage of the Internet but so far, I haven't meant that. And as I'm using space on usage, I'll use some more on utilize. Using utilize instead of utilizing use is one of those attempts to make things sound more important than they really are. Sports announcers do that all the time. They misapply big words. He's not utilizing all his skills. They don't understand that an athlete doesn't utilize his skills. He uses them. The coach utilizes his players. 
but the players use their skills. Don't use utilize when you should be utilizing use. Carlin goes on. Another sports announcer crime is the use of the word differential when they mean difference. There was a 12-point differential at halftime. No, no, sorry. There was a 12-point difference. Differential is a mechanical or mathematical term. And by mathematical, I don't mean Knicks 55, Pacers 43. Difference and differential are different. And finally, he says, It also annoys me that people sometimes claim to see a linkage when they actually see a link. I think link is fine. Linkage reminds me of my car's transmission. In fact, I think my car's linkage is located somewhere near the differential. We mentioned in segment one uh, my appearance on on Insight. We had uh, Dr. Brian Weir, meteorologist, talk a little bit about uh, uh, changing weather patterns and and global warming. We uh, we also spoke with uh, Dr. Barry Klein about nuclear power and... and, um, we have to bring Dr. Klein on this program to talk about it as well. I know nuclear power just gets no traction in a lot of circles. And, you know, I quoted that Greenpeace uh, quote on the show that um, that said, I don't know who said it to Greenpeace, but someone, some wag, said that uh, if nuclear power is the answer, it must have been a stupid question. But uh, we find it hard to agree with that. Uh, nuclear power is not the answer, but I think it's part of what needs to be instituted in the next, say, 50 to 100 years if we're going to save this planet. I mean, uh, a lot of different technologies have to pull their weight. And while we're talking about that, we should uh, forward promote the fact that we're going to talk about who killed the electric car with Chris Payne, the director of, of that uh, movie, which is coming, uh, coming to the local area sometime in August. It's a, it's a pretty darn good film, and uh, we'll have more to say about it between now and the time it does show up locally. Again, we want to point out that uh, you know the electric car also has a role to play. It is a valuable technology in urban areas, but ultimately, uh, the use of an EV1 or an electric car is uh, not much consolation ecologically to people living near coal-fired power plants, which supply more than 50% of America's electricity. We think in California that our energy is pretty green, and I think that we do have a lot of hydroelectric here in the state, but that only supplies something like 15, uh, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 25, but it is a you know fairly small minority of our power. Anyway, we'll have more to say on that. But uh, speaking of Davis professors, we'd cite UC Davis Magazine. It's a summer uh, edition. A little blurb in there about the fact that the cracks and fins in the sand of an American desert look very similar to features that are seen on photos from Mars, which some thought might indicate uh, the recent presence of water on the red planet's surface. Now, a new study was done by researcher Greg Chavdarian and Don Sumner, Associate Professor of Geology at UC Davis. Chavdarian spent weeks surveying cracks and fins that form on these sulfate-rich sands at White Sands National Monument in New Mexico, which has a geological environment similar to the area of Mars visited by the Opportunity robot rover. In uh, lab experiments, he found the cracks form and grow only in damp sand. Uh, So when we talk about recent water, uh, Dr. Sumner said, well, recent as in ongoing now. We think they're right. Well, more correctly, we have a hunch that they're right.
And a little bit of trivia from the same magazine, UC Davis Magazine, asked the following. Who was the first in the world to see the microscopic yet devastating Ebola virus? Your choices are all UC Deers. Was it Leland Carmichael, 52? Robin Bronner, 94, Niels Peterson, 65, or Frederick Murphy, 64? And the answer is Frederick Murphy. Graduated in 64, the PhD, former director of the National Center for Infectious Diseases at the CDC in Atlanta, former dean of the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. He was the first to see this devastating disease, uh, the Ebola, which affects the body violently and has often been proven to be fatal. Since we're talking about Davis and we're doing quizzes, let's pull this one out of the B. Talking about Penny Lane dodging a bullet on getting renamed. Well, uh, the ghost of John Sutter was no doubt uh, saddened by the fact that the Davis City Council earlier this year voted to remove his name from a city street because of concerns about his treatment of American Indians. Sutter Place was replaced by this name honoring a prominent American Indian activist. A. Don Bernstick Street. B. David Riesling Jr. Court. C. Leonard Peltier Way. Or D. Sherman Alexi Avenue. And in fact, Sutter Place became David Riesling Jr. Court. All right, let's, let's do some science. I was rather surprised to see a good science article in the New Yorker magazine. We, uh, we quote extensively from New Scientist on this program. And uh, let me take a moment to, to mournfully pause the passing of Discover magazine, one we've relied on quite frequently on, on this show. Discover magazine is still being published. However, it apparently has been bought by Bob Guccione, he of Penthouse magazine. And uh, the new version of Discover, which sort of had a, a stylistic uh, makeover a few issues back, is disturbingly reminiscent of Omni, which was really a pseudo-scientific piece of trash for the most part. I remember their classic by Gary Null, how doctors could cure cancer but wouldn't because they'd make more money treating the victims. You know, Gary Null, the guy that claims he can grow your hair back by give, you know, using celery juice. Gotta say, I, I quit supporting a KVIE Channel 6 uh, for quite a long time after they used Gary Null on their fundraising drive many years back. Anyway, I hope somebody with more integrity can, can, can buy Discover back and get it out of Guccione's hands. But perhaps the New Yorker can take up some of the slack. Their article on The Tenth Planet by Alec Wilkison is, is worth a look. Mentions early in the article a guy that we need to probably get on this show uh, in the not-too-distant future. That would be Brian Marsden. Um, they're trying to decide, as they point out in this, in this article, what a planet is. This is, of course, a source of much uh, derision in the scientific community that after all this time, people can't agree what a planet is. They point out in the article that at this point, a planet, like the term continent, is, uh, is something of a non-scientific term. But that may change when the International Astronomical Union meets in Prague to try and set up a definitive uh, definition for the word planet. I'm sure that uh, Mr. Dr. Brian Marsden will have a hand in this. Uh, Marsden is the director of the Minor Planet Center, which is run by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Uh, the, he, they share quarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts with the Harvard College Observatory. And Marsden is the go-to guy when it comes to naming stuff in the solar system. 
It's becoming somewhat of a hot issue in the wake of a Mike Brown professor at Caltech using some rather small telescopes to look around uh, on the edge of the solar system and find a lot of objects. It's been predicted by some for some time that if they looked out beyond Neptune, they might find uh, an object uh, that would be even larger than Pluto. Well, that's now been done. Brown had previously found an object almost as big as Pluto, which he named Quahuar, <laughs> and the trans-Neptunian object now, which is even larger than Pluto, he wants to name Xena. He's also named two other curious objects orbiting out in the edge of the solar system, Santa and Easter Bunny. You can see with Mike Brown slapping names like that, <laughs> some of these objects, why people like Brian Marsden feel the need to get involved. Anyway, when the decision is made, we will report on it for you. In a naming contest of a radically different nature, we should digress momentarily to point out that the Miss Universe pageant <laughs> took place this weekend, and the award went to Miss Puerto Rico. Or as they say on Univision, Puerto Rico. I only mention this because I went down to Los Angeles this week to hang out with some of the friends I've made in the public radio news directors uh, organization. They're a fun bunch to go out and have beers with, so I couldn't resist going down to L.A. to do that. In the hotel where the event took place, where we stayed, they were also housing the Miss Universe contestants, which was a very strange scene. The average height of these women appeared to have been like 5'11". Or at least, I didn't actually see any of the contestants. All I saw were their hangers on and apparently some maybe previous contestants for the contest. But these women were Amazons. And it was just a, a very strange vibe. Which did uh, prom prompt me to actually watch a little bit of the competition on television. The first time I've seen a beauty pageant since I was a small boy. All I can say is they're even cornier than I remember. But anyway, back to science. Astronomy Magazine, uh, Sky and Telescope, with all these beautiful photos that are coming back from, uh, from these, you know, Hubble Telescope and the like. Man, they have put out some beautiful issues in the past few years. I, I did think that the August issue, a uh, special meteorite issue uh, with rocks from space, exclamation point uh, on the cover, made some pretty interesting reading. I actually have in my home a chunk of the meteor that blew that big crater down in Arizona, the, uh, the Behringer uh, meteor crater. And people are always shocked when I let them hold it, and it's just this really dense, heavy piece of iron. Which reminds me, if you ever uh, get a chance to go over to the um, Physics Geology Building here on the UC Davis campus, they really have a wonderful geologic exhibit in the building, some just, just beautiful examples of, uh, of, of, uh, of rocks and minerals with a few fossils thrown in. It's, it's worth a look. Um, sorry to report that uh, next month's Perseid meteor shower is going to be really washed out by the full moon. The moon will not only be full the day before the uh, meteor shower kicks in, it will be at perigee, meaning the moon will be as close as it gets to the Earth, making it an especially bright full moon. This will be slightly tempered by the fact that the moon will be unusually low in the sky for reasons we don't have time to explain. Anyway, meteor showers are always fun. Hopefully you'll be able to see a few next month. In other news from space, uh, they've looked in Antarctica and the snow and the ice down there and discovered what appear to be the best preserved bits of comet dust yet found. They're thought to be perhaps in better condition 
than the sample that NASA's Stardust mission brought back from a comet's tail. Now that's a pleasant surprise. Another bit of good news from New Scientist magazine, <laughs> accompanying a picture of a guy with a tattoo on his arm that says, <laughs> Labina with a line through it, Bridget with a line through it, and then Claudia below. Article notes, if you're planning to express your undying love for someone with a tattoo, you might want to wait a little while before going under the needle. Apparently, new inks that are safer to use and far easier to remove should you have a change of heart are set to be launched next year. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which regulates everything else in the world, has no standards for the safety of dyes used in body art. And uh, they put some rather alarming things in some of these dyes, uh, but I don't even want to go into that. Apparently, the new method is going to put little micro beads under your skin, and if they want to zap them with a laser, the dyes inside will leak out and be absorbed by the body. Good news, I think, uh, on a lot of fronts. All right, Mr. McMillan's insisting <laughs> I mention some of the things that are in, in this, and according to the article... Heavy metals and other toxic chemicals are in some of these pigments, which can then seep into the body's lymphatic system. That's according to Martin Schmieg, president of the company Freedom 2 in Philadelphia, which is planning to introduce a range of dyes that have been approved already by the FDA for use in cosmetics, food, drugs, and medical devices. It's noted that at present, carbon black, which is basically soot, metal salts, and other compounds more commonly used in the printing industry or car paint are among those currently in vogue. All right, let's do some eco stuff, uh, mostly from New Scientist. Uh, they have an article in last week's issue noting the days of California wine are numbered as climate heats up. They suggest in the magazine that you should enjoy that California Cabernet while you still can. Thanks to climate change, the pleasure may not last much longer. It's felt that global warming could scorch up to 80% of the U.S.'s grape growing areas, making them too hot to produce wine by the end of the century. They said California would be especially hard hit with Napa Valley, home to 200 wineries, eliminated from wine production altogether. I'm hoping someone from the Viticulture or Enology Department at UC Davis is listening and will please send me an email at info at Radio Parallax to see whether this sounds plausible to you. Because as far as I know, when I drive down to Stockton, down in the hot, hotter parts of the valley, which is much hotter than Napa Valley here, our Central Valley, there's grape fields galore. And I understand that uh, the Gallo in, in the Modesto area, which is pretty darned uh, sizzling, uh, is the largest winery in the world. I don't know if that's true, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, that I doubt you're going to knock out wine production everywhere in the Napa Valley with global warming. But then I, I don't know. So experts, please sound off on this. Now, you may have noted uh, that apparently Harriet, the allegedly 176-year-old tortoise in, uh, in the Queensland Zoo, passed away last month. Uh, they asked the curator if he was going to stuff her, put her on display, and he said, putting her in a museum would be like selling your grandmother for science. <laughs> we like to point out that that's, that's probably only true if your grandmother was a tortoise. But I was tickled by the editorial in New Scientist last week by Henry Nichols, who's uh, author of Lonesome George, about the last, uh, the last Galapagos tortoise, tortoise from one of the islands, I can't remember, one of the smaller islands. He points out that... Uh, 
A flood in 1893 washed away records at the Brisbane Botanic Gardens, which, which, really, which really makes the story about this tortoise being associated with Charles Darwin very dubious. In fact, when they celebrated Harriet's 175th birthday last year, uh, that was based on the, you know, the ill-informed guess, uh, on, based on a far-fetched assumption that she was on the Beagle, thus making her 175. Anyway, we're sorry that Harriet's gone, but, uh, but the truth is her pedigree was probably less exotic than advertised. All right, let's close this segment here with four, uh, four, four items on uh, wild animals. Too good, too bad. Let's start with a bad one. Scientists out at the Farallon Islands have noted that there's been a precipitous decline of some of the birds out there. They feel that warmer ocean waters are disrupting the Pacific food chain. By the way, for the second year in a row, they noted that these uh, tiny Cassin auklets uh, live on the open sea, but in the spring they, uh, they come to the Farallons to breed. They usually feed their chicks with krill, which are basically little uh, shrimp-like crustaceans, but for the second year in a row, almost none of the 20,000 pairs of Cassin's auklets will raise a chick that lives more than a few days. UCD, of course, has a marine biology lab at Bodega Bay. We're going to try and look into this uh, story and see what we can find out. Balancing that off is the much better news that in, uh, in, in southern Africa, it appears the wild dog is making a comeback. The animals had been ravaged by rabies, uh, so they set out uh, in the Serengeti Game Reserve in Tanzania to inoculate the wild dogs against rabies, and it appears that they have built some resistance into uh, some of the uh, packs of dogs, and they're making a comeback. So, uh, you know, bravo to the people of uh, Tanzania for doing that. Let's take at this point a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Hey, I- 